We're going to go into the Word of the Lord. And if you've been here, you are aware that we have been in a series in the book of Daniel for the past six weeks, and now this is the seventh week of our excursus into the book of Daniel. And I believe that I, I mentioned last week that the book of Daniel takes a turn and shifts here in chapter 7. The first six chapters are Daniel's interaction with the various kings or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, you may be seated, that's fine. The interaction with the various kings and, and various things going on in a chronological sequence. And now, in Daniel chapter 7, he's going to change what he's writing and he's going to record under the inspiration of the Spirit of God visions and dreams that he had about the end time and I would say about the times that you and I are living in and are shortly here to come and he does this in a chronological sequence as well in, in the, the sequence that he received the dreams and the visions so Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to be today I'm going to read 11 verses and then we will analyze the scripture together. But Daniel chapter 7 verse 17 says this. These great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three of those ten kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So today I want to preach for just a little while on a guaranteed end, a guaranteed end. 
many people fear the dark. I, I don't know that I've ever feared the dark, but I have feared what was in the dark that I couldn't see, or what was in the dark that I imagined was there, but wasn't really there. Anybody, anybody afraid of the dark when you were growing up? Anybody still afraid of the dark? Anybody still afraid of what might be in the dark? I, I probably told you this before, man, when I would go into an empty house, you know, I'd come home by myself when I was a kid or whatever, if I was there. I mean, I would talk really loudly, assuming that by talking, whoever might be there was going to flee and run off, and they'd be more scared of me, they were more scared of me than I was of them. I don't know that that ever worked, but I never found anybody in the house, so it absolutely had to work, right? But the reality is that, that people aren't really afraid of the dark per se, they're afraid of the unknown, because you don't know what you can't see, you don't know what's there that you can't see, and it... It might not be anything dangerous. It could just be a toy that somebody left and you step on. Have you ever stepped on something going barefoot through the house in the middle of the night? Man, that, that's, not, that's not good. So it's that fear of, of the unknown. And, and people are afraid of the future because it is unknown for most of them. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us know what's going to happen next week. I have plans next week. I will be asked this coming week. We're leaving tomorrow for, for Indianapolis, and we'll be there until Saturday, and we'll come back. We'll be out of town for a conference all week, and I've got plans. But the reality is I have no idea what's going to take place. I don't, ha I don't know what's going to take place between now and my scheduled departure tomorrow, and if I'll even go tomorrow. I'm just planning, but it's unknown because it's in the future the reality is, is that with God, the future is the present. And maybe even the future is like the past to Him because He sees the end from the beginning. And so He gives us glimpses of what's coming in our future. But to Him, it's like it's already happened. That God is not in this choose-your-own-adventure idea. Anybody ever read those choose-your-own-adventure books? You get, to, you get to a certain place... In, in the book, and then it asks you, do you want to do this, this, or this? And depending on your answer, you go to a certain page. And you, you start down that path, and then you realize you chose the wrong thing because you die about two pages later. You're like, man, that's, that's choose a different adventure. And you go back, and you choose a different path. Anybody ever done that? Those, are you familiar with those books? You have missed out. I'm just going to encourage you. Go out and buy some choose-your-own-adventure books. that will change your life. But here's the reality for you and I. We can choose our own adventure. We can choose to follow Jesus Christ and have a guaranteed end that is with Him forever. Or we can choose a different path that will leave us wishing we had made a different choice. There are only two choices in our lives today, and that is to either follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. One is going to be a, a glorious ending. The other is going to be the antithesis or the opposite of that. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7 in this understanding of we have a guaranteed end, and there is not only a guaranteed end for us, but there is a guaranteed end for every being that is in existence today. The question is, what is the, def the destination of those who serve God? And 
What is the destination of those who do not serve God? We get a glimpse of that in Daniel chapter 7. And understand this, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are one of the largest Old Testament sections about the end time. And I'm not going to dwell in and go into all of the ins and outs and the interpretation of every piece of Daniel 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12. I'm not going to go into that in detail. If you're interested in that, see me and we can do a Bible study. I've got Bible studies I could show you. I've got Bible studies we could do. We can talk about the details of that and the imagery that is being seen. But I I want to look at this and I'll bring a little bit of that in, but it's not going to be an exhaustive look. But when it comes to the time of the end, the first thing that we need to know is this, is that, that God knows the nations who will be in existence at the time of the end. He knows the nations that are going to be around at the end of the age. And, and let me, as I'm saying the end times or end of the age, or uh, you may have heard the word eschatology. So let me slow down just a moment and, and explain those words to you. Specifically, eschatology. If you notice, the word eschatology has the O-L-O-G-Y at the end of it. If you were to study biology, it's the study of life or bio. It's the word for life. And so the study of life. And so eschatology is the study of the eschaton. Now you say, what is eschaton? Well, I'm glad you asked. Eschaton is the Greek word that means last things. Okay, it means last things. So eschatology is the study of the last things or the study of the end times. A lot of times people use various phrases interchangeably, end times or eschatology or end of the age or end of the world. Sometimes they'll even throw in eternity and use all of those as interchangeable terms. Now they're not necessarily interchangeable terms. But all of them roughly are describing the time right up before Jesus comes the second time and establishes his kingdom here on earth. So what we're looking at is a period of time right before the second coming. And our text will address a little bit of that second coming. And once again, because we have have six chapters we're going to go through, I'm not going to go into detail. I'm going to let you piece it together as we go through the various visions that Daniel has but but understand this that the God who knows all things the God who knows the end from the beginning and he sees all of that he obviously knows the nations that are going to be in existence at the time of his second coming stands the reason if he can see the future he knows all of this and and he describes those nations earlier in Daniel chapter 7 verses 3 through 8 And I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to try to hurry through this. But just to to kind of give you an example of an understanding, he he describes four beasts total. We read about the fourth beast, but the first three beasts that he, he sees, Daniel sees in his vision, he says they're rising up out of the sea. Now the sea doesn't necessarily mean the sea, but it just means they're coming out of the earth or the, the humanity of the earth. And he sees a lion with eagle's wings. He sees a bear that is laying on his side and it's got three ribs in its mouth and 
He sees a leopard with four heads, and it's got four wings of a bird on its back. And people have, for centuries, tried to understand what these mean and, and trying to figure out what nations that these could represent. I, I would tell you, though, that what is clear is that these nations are going to be in existence at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the way in which I know that is because he's not necessarily giving a sequential pattern. There's going to be this nation and then this nation and then another nation. We saw that sequence of event in Daniel chapter 2 when, when King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of, of a statue that had a head of gold and it had arms and a chest of silver and it had torso of, of bronze and then it had legs of iron and then feet that were mingled with iron and clay. And the understanding of that was a sequence of kingdoms, Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then, and then the, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and finally those feet of iron mingled with clay. It was the Holy Roman Empire which started in 800 A.D. with the crowning of Charlemagne as the emperor by the Pope. That lasted for a thousand and six years. And while people look at these animals and these beasts as it is described and try to figure it out what I would tell you is that these are nations that are going to be at the time of the end now I know that from two ways one I know that because the scripture describes them here and implies that they're going to be there along with that fourth beast but I also know because then you when you see in the book of Revelation you see, these animals that are mentioned here and that fourth beast that we're going to look at in just a moment, and they're all one conglomeration in the book of Revelation, and it is the world, one world government, governmental system that is at place at the time of the second coming of Jesus. Some have speculated, and maybe rightly so, that the lion represents Great Britain. Almost everybody knows that the symbol of Great Britain is the lion. The text tells us that the wings of the eagle are plucked off of the lion. Anybody know what the symbol of the United States, the animal symbol of the United States is? It's the eagle. So just maybe that the lion is Great Britain and those eagle's wings that were plucked off are the United States of America. The bear, there is a world power whose symbol is the bear. Everybody would know that the Russian bear, it's, it is Russia. The leopard, a little more difficult, but you can nail it down through a variety of studies that the nation that has the leopard is the nation of Germany. And we see those nations around us today. But even if we didn't see those nations around us, and even if we couldn't pinpoint those, what I would tell you is when we look around us and we look at the signs of the times as they say, we are getting close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're getting close to this wrapping all up. And Jesus, and God gave him Daniel over in 550 B.C. He gave him a vision of all of this. Some 2,500 years ago, he saw the nations that will be in existence at the time of the end. Daniel's not too bothered by the first three beasts, but this fourth beast, it really bothers him. 
He can't understand it. In fact, he doesn't have language to describe the beast. It defies any kind of beast in the animal kingdom that he's ever seen. He's seen a lion and he's seen a bear and he's seen a leopard. And he's like, man, this beast was like that. But the fourth beast, he's like, man, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that. And so he inquires and wants to know what does this beast mean? Most people will tell you, regardless of how they interpret the first three beasts, and where they put those first three beasts in the human government timeline, that this last beast is unquestionably a beast that is in existence at the time of the end. In fact, most people would tell you that it is a revived Holy Roman Empire. Now I realize for many of you I'm using language and, and things that you've never heard. So, so let me pause right here and, and tell you that the Holy Roman Empire, you, you know about the Roman Empire. Just after 200 B.C., around 197, 196, the, the city of Rome, the city-state of Rome began to rise to power and for some 500 years, Rome ruled the world. But then in Around 300, in the 300s A.D., Rome's power began to wane and, and the, the Vandals came in and the Goths came in and, and Rome lost its power. But then, as Rome lost its political power, rising up in Rome was the Roman Catholic Church that started ultimately with, with the Bishop of Rome being the first among equals and then finally he rose to be called the Pope, and he was the head of the Roman church. And as the, the church of Rome began to spread, Roman Catholicism began to spread, it, it had a lot of power because when, when Constantine became emperor of Rome, he made Catholicism the state religion. It was the, the religion of the empire. So everywhere Rome had been in control, Catholicism reigned. And so... The power of the church was still at work. And as I mentioned, in 800 A.D., Charlemagne, who was a German, was anointed to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He was anointed to be emperor by the Pope. So the Holy Roman Empire differs from the Roman Empire, which was a purely political and governmental type of system, to a system that was both church and state. The holy is the church part, and the Roman is the empire and the governmental piece of that. And so Charlemagne was the name given to the first emperor. And so, as I mentioned, for some thousand and six years, the holy Roman empire reigned. All of the nations of Europe, their, their kings and their queens were anointed by the pope as this mixture of church and state and but in 1806, as the political power began to drop off and various assassinations took place, the Holy Roman Empire began to dissolve. But we have seen in the last number of decades the revival of the Holy Roman Empire. The landmass of Europe and the nations of Europe are all where the Holy Roman Empire was, and we've seen them all come together in the European Union. One currency, working toward a one governmental system. 
But regardless of whether you think that is it or not, almost everyone will tell you as they interpret the Scripture and they analyze the Scripture that this fourth beast, whatever and whenever, is going to be a revival of the Holy Roman Empire. And what we see in Scripture is this. It's that there's not just a one-world governmental system at the time of the end, but, but the book of Revelation tells us in addition to that one-world governmental system is a one-world religious system. And the head of the one-world governmental system is the Antichrist. And the head of the one-world religious system is the false prophet. It is a joining of church and state. Just like the Holy Roman Empire. That the ten toes of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 representing the same ten kings that the ten horns represent here. And the book of Revelation puts all of this together and ties it all in. Ultimately, what I'm just telling you is this, is that there is coming a, a day when we will have a one-world governmental system. It does not mean that every person in the, the world will be under their control, but the majority of the world will be under the control of this one-world governmental system. And the head of that one-world governmental system will be the Antichrist. Our text in Daniel tells us that he will verbally oppose God, that he will speak blasphemies against God. That he will, he will demean the name of God and he will make war against the saints of God. Unless that scare you, Jesus promised to us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, in this world and in this life, you will have tribulation. He did not promise us that everything would go good. I, I would tell you that in North America, we have it pretty good today. But there are places in the world that even now that Christians are dying since we've started this service today for their testimony and their belief in Jesus Christ. And this one world governmental system will accelerate that and that in the end times, everybody who calls on the name of Jesus will be in persecution. The Antichrist will remove all but his religious system. The text says that he's going to try to change the times and the laws. And what that means is that he's going to try to change the religious calendar. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate a number of Christian holidays. You've already seen that in our world, as our world is, you can't say, Merry Christmas. They don't tell you Merry Christmas in the store anymore. They're like, Happy Holidays. What holiday is that supposed to be? Well, that might be Christmas, but we can't say that. We already see the moving away from anything that's Christian and overtly Christian and pushing away from that even here in North America, the United States, that he's going to seek to do that. And, and the Bible says that he will have dominion, our text said, for time, times, and half a time. Now you may say, what in the world does that mean? Once again, I'm glad you asked. And the reality is, we don't have to guess what it means because Scripture tells us what it means. Because in other places in the Bible, it tells us that the Antichrist will have power for three and a half years. In another place, it tells us that he will have power for 1260 days. Daniel is a Jew 
writing as a Jew, they use a lunar calendar, which is exactly 30 days. If you were to take 1260 divided by 30, you will get 42 months, which is exactly three and a half years, which is what the scripture says. So by taking three and a half years of the 42 months and the 1260 days, then what we can see is this, that the time here means one year, times is two years, and then half a time is half a year for a total of three and a half years or 42 months. That he will have dominion for 42 months. Later in the book of Daniel, we're going to see Daniel has another vision and, and it gives a timeline of all of this. But most of us and most of you have heard or been raised around the idea that the tribulation, the great tribulation or the wrath of God is seven years in length. But when you look at it, and we're going to see where the seven years comes from, and there is a seven-year time period when it comes to eschatology and the end times. But his dominion is cemented and in, in place for only three and a half years. And it is the second half of that seven-year period. But here's the deal. That you and I... Whether we're a part of that or not, and we're not going to talk about the rapture of the church today and when that happens and how that happens, we'll look at that later. But whether we're a part of that or not doesn't really matter because the third thing I want you to know is this, that in the end, Satan's plans will be destroyed. That when all of this comes about and, and when the Antichrist has dominion for 42 months and he's only got it for three and a half years, that in the end, God is going to eradicate his plans Daniel 7 26 says it this way but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion that is the Antichrist will be taken away annihilated and destroyed forever aren't you thankful that Satan is not going to win no matter what he tries he will not win but his plan will be destroyed would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise for that and why do I say in the end Satan's plans because the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will be will be demon-possessed, that the devil will empower him to do the works that he is doing. And ultimately, as Satan tries to work through the Antichrist and the false prophet to bring about a one-world government so that they do not need God, God is going to step in and Satan's plans will be destroyed. The Bible doesn't give us all the details here. It just says his dominion will be taken away. We see in other places in Revelation and various places throughout the Bible how this will happen. But let me hasten. The fourth thing that I want you to see in this text is this, is that in the end, we win. Daniel 7, 27, the first part says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the most, or of the highest one. That the dominion that the Antichrist had is going to be given to the people of God. In the end, you and I are going to win. That in the end, what the Antichrist has tried to do will be taken away from him and given to us. 
Aren't you thankful that you're on the winning side today? Aren't you thankful that you're on the side of Jesus Christ and that we are going to win in the end? That we and everyone else who serves Jesus Christ will win. And then we will rule and reign with Christ in a theocracy. Right now we live in a democracy, sort of. Really it's more a representative republic. But God's plan was not for a democracy. And, and God's plan was not for a representative republic. God's plan was and is for a theocracy. Theocracy, it comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, where God rules. It is what he wanted for Israel. It is what Israel rejected when they said, we don't, we don't want you just to be king over us, God, but we want some human kings. And God finally said, all right, I'll let you have it, but you're not going to like it. That God's plan was that he would be the one ruling and reigning. And he is going to allow us to rule and reign with him in the end as a theocracy where God is in control. But the reality is it's not just that we're winning like we've done something great. But ultimately, in the end, God wins. It is he who is the winner. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will be one. They will serve and they will obey Him. That you and I, while we may be ruling and reigning as kings and priests, as the book of Revelation tells us, ultimately God is in charge and if we are serving Him, we are to be obeying Him. Ultimately, all of the dominion is His. That the God who started all of this, when He spoke the worlds into existence and He created everything, that God, whose power was usurped and whose authority was usurped, and when Adam and Eve sinned and when Satan decided to rebel in heaven, that at the end of it all, God's kingdom will be the only thing left. Satan's kingdom destroyed. And you and I ruling and reigning with Him forever. That you and I have an eternity with God if we belong to Him. To sum it up, in the end, God knows the nations that are going to be in existence. In the end, there will be a one world governmental system just before Jesus returns. But ultimately, in the end, Satan's plans will be destroyed and we will win and God will win. But you and I only win if we're on his side. Not because we have any power, not because we have anything great to offer, but we only win because we are on his side. So how do we ensure that we are on God's side. I referenced it earlier. If you could unmute the, the music. Uh, but I referenced it earlier with telling the, the gospel of 
Jesus Christ and how Jesus came in the form of a man, came as a baby in a manger. lived a perfect, sinless life. Crucified on a cross. Buried in a tomb. On the third day, He arose. Just like He said. When He told him, He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They didn't know what he was talking about, but he was talking about his own body that was going to be three days in the grave, that he would raise it up. And the beauty of, of the gospel is how it all fits together. That it's not just disjointed pieces disjointed elements and we get to try to figure it out. When Peter preaches the first sermon the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 right after they had been filled with the, the promise and the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus kept telling them was coming. Acts chapter 2 starts with that fulfillment of the promise. It says it this way, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they're all with one accord in one house, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They had been waiting for the promise. Jesus told Nicodemus all the way back in John 3, he said the promise is coming, but even before that, John the Baptist had said, I'll baptize you with water, but he who's coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Whose shoes I am not even worthy to unloose. And Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, says you've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to be born of the Spirit. And he uses the term, the, the language of wind there. He said, the wind blows where it wants to. You can hear the sound thereof, but you can't see where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John chapter 7. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 7 tells us that the Spirit can't come in that way of salvation until after Jesus is glorified. In case you don't know, He is glorified not at the cross. He's not even glorified at the resurrection. He's not glorified until His ascension where He sits at the right hand of the Father. Which is why in John 10 and John 14 and John 16, He keeps saying, the Spirit is coming. I've got to go away. Oh, it's for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, then the Spirit's not going to come. But if I go away, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will come to you. The Spirit's going to come. Can't happen yet, but it's coming. There's coming a time when the Spirit's going to come. 
end of Luke, he says, you've got to go and wait. Acts chapter 1, he says, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave until you receive the promise of the Father. What's the promise? It's that infilling of the Spirit that he'd been saying was coming. I'm getting ready to ascend, and when I do, it's now going to be time for you to do it, to receive that infilling of the Spirit, but don't wait. Or don't leave Jerusalem until it happens. In Acts chapter 2, and I just quoted it to you, it happened where the Spirit comes. Just like he, he made that analogy in John chapter 3 that the wind blows where it wants to. It's like a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And just like John the Baptist said, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Cloven tongues like as a fire set up on each of them. It's the only time we see those two elements in the rest of Scripture when people are filled with the Spirit. But what we see every time that the Bible describes the infilling of the Spirit and tells us what happens. They speak in another language that they do not know and they have not learned. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, they speak. But I tell you all of that, and I, and I took longer than I anticipated to do it, but, but to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the death, the burial, the resurrection. And when Peter stands up after just receiving the infilling of the Spirit, and he's preaching a message, and his message brings conviction, and the people ask him, if they were pricked, the Bible says they were pricked or cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we he said, repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, repentance is like that death that Jesus died on the cross. We follow him in his death when we die to ourselves. That baptism is us following him in his burial. As Peter said, we are buried with him in baptism the scripture tells us that when we're filled with the spirit we rise to walk with newness of life just like Jesus was resurrected and if that spirit that dwelt in Christ dwell in us it shall also quicken our mortal bodies and speaking of those end times and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord it is a beautiful plan that the Bible all fits together. That we apply the gospel to our lives by following Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through repentance, through water baptism, through the infilling of his spirit. So my call to action for you today is this. Ensure that you have joined God's family through the new birth. That phrase comes from John 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Surely, surely, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born of water and of spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is that application of the gospel. When you and I have done that, we need to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus through spiritual disciplines. Spending time in His Word and spending time in prayer and spending time with His people and spending time sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Siri wants to get in on it. We're also to make disciples. This is the third thing that I would tell you to do. And lastly, I would say it this way. That you and I must stand firm for truth. It's not enough to begin. It's not enough to once upon a time I was a child of God. It's, it's not enough to once upon a time I was serving God. It's, but if we want to have a guaranteed end, then we must stand firm for truth. I'm convinced that that's your heartbeat today. But I encourage you, as we stand together, to, you can do that right now, would you stand together? we get ready to sing would you just lift your voice to the Lord and would you talk to him right now would you ask him to be at work in you that you would stand firm in spite of the opposition in spite of the trouble in spite of the tribulation that may come would you do that right now would you talk to the Lord God we love you we, we praise and adore you today God, we want Your Spirit to be at work in us. God, thank You for Your salvation. Thank You for who You are. Thank You for the salvation plan that You have given us. That You have called us to be Your people. You have called us to be in relationship with You. Lord, we worship You. We adore You. We magnify Your name. God, there's nobody like You today. There's nobody like you today. You are an awesome God. You are an awesome God. Lord, I pray today that the power of your Spirit would draw us to you and that we would remain close to you. That we would remain committed to you. That we would remain faithful to you. That we would stand firm in the middle of any opposition today. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for your presence and your power. We thank you for what you have done on the cross that would guarantee that we have an end with you.